We're in the last portion of Genesis, Vayechi. The last time we had Vayechi, we had, it was sort of, um, uh, I'm always reminded of the portion Chaye Sarah, which uh, literally means the life of Sarah earlier, in, and that the first thing that happens in Parsha Vayechi Sarah is that Sarah dies. So that we have a portion called the life of Sarah, but Sarah dies. And here we have a portion, Vayechi, which means, and he lived, and everybody dies. So, well, the he it's referring to is uh, Jacob, (coughs) excuse me, who dies in this portion, as does Joseph, eventually. It's one of those portions. It's kind of wrapping up one stage of... (coughs) Jewish life, Israeli Israelite life. It's wrapping up the first book of the Torah, which uh, begins with the creation of the world and ends with the creation of essentially the Jewish people. Um, another kind of creation story of uh, in preparation for what's coming next, which of course is. Exodus and the Exodus. The Torah seems to be <clears throat> oriented around big <clears throat> stories. Big stories, yes. And they just progress. <clears throat> the Torah is one big plot after is uh, definitely organized around some large strokes mm-hmm. of ideas and principles that sort of weave their way throughout. But there are certainly big chunks of stories. I mean, you know, look. The narrative of of the Jewish people, come on, Margo. The narrative of the Jewish people is we were chosen by God in in the Torah. We were slaves and we went free. <clears throat> we were chosen. <coughs> I'll be coughing for an hour now. Chosen by God, <clears throat> and um, with the covenant of Abraham. <clears throat> then repeated Isaac, then repeated Jacob. And then we use that theme, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob theme and the promise of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob forever to this day. We're still picking up the Sigur, the prayer book, and we go, we read a prayer, you know, Abraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, sort of one of our running themes. But it makes one think also that the stories can't be written really until that era has passed. Oh, that. So, yes. <laughs> so yes, the okay. stories were not written by God in ink at the time. No. They are written afterwards by people who have changed. What do you think God's pen looked like, God who was writing the story? And where did he get the ink? Where did he get the ink? What color ink did he use? Did she get the ink. Or she, right? <clears throat> but yes. that makes me think that the era that we're in now has yet to be written, it won't be in the Torah, but the Torah is a closed book already. Right. But it will be written in, in other studies. And what will this era encompass? Well, we often, we often, I think, talk about, particularly when it comes to politics and politicians or presidents or one generation after the next, saying, when history will be written, mm-hmm. how will history look back upon this era or that era or this era or that era? Um, because we recognize that in, in contemporaneously we don't have the same perspective, 
of what it means, that is, what the impact of decisions made today will be 10 years from now, 50 years from now, whatever, you know. Um, and that's just rational, logical, that, that uh, things have consequences. Decisions have consequences. Acts have consequences. And, uh, and we can't necessarily, sorry, predict, I want to show you my back, necessarily predict in advance what the consequences of decisions that we make today. Um, it's one of the great uh, challenges of life, the art of living, is trying to figure out what are the big things and what are the little things in life. And one of the, to me, one of the, one of the revelations of life uh, part of wisdom of growing older in life is recognizing, having a, a perspective that's different on your own life, first of all, sort of using that as a model for, for the world, recognizing that when you're in something, you're in it. You're just living it, you're doing it, you're making choices, making the best decision you can given the information you have at the time, and it doesn't pay to beat yourself up constantly about why did I do that and why did I do that and why did I do that because the reason you did it at the time was it made the most sense to you at the time. You know, you can't be over here and over here at the same time. You're here when you're here, you're here when you're here, and you're over here when you're over here. And, you know, it's, it's part I was, me, yes. Ago, yes. Play took place in the future, and there was an uh, archaeological dig, and they got down to an era, an era when they used formica, and <laughs> we were called the age of the formica. The age of formica. That's funny. I like that. <laughs> yeah. You look. You know. <clears throat> we're we're going to be called the age of waste. Yes. The age of plastic, you know, we're going to be, whatever, who knows what we're going to be called. But um, but just like you don't know, we don't know collectively, um, in the grand scale, exactly how we're going to be judged, so to speak, uh, when our own history is written. Uh, and just like, you know, as Judy suggests, the, 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 Scholars of Torah often look at uh, descriptions that take place in the Torah, including this week's Torah portion, where Jacob gives that sort of rambling and not often, not always understandable uh, testament, if not blessings, to his sons, anyway, uh, some of which, I mean, there's... They're not clear, anyway, all of them. Scholars look at that and go, well, the fact that he picks uh, Judah and says to Judah, in particular, you're sort of, you're going to flourish and you're going to be the leader and you're going to be this and you're going to be that, suggests that it was written after the fact when, in fact, the tribe of Judah was the dominant tribe and we call ourselves Jews, we don't call ourselves Benjamins, you know, we call ourselves Jews, the allegedly from Judah, from Yehuda. Um, you know, we, we don't call ourselves any of the other 
named after the other tribes, collectively we named ourselves after Judah. So, um, and that most likely this was written after the fact, written back into history to acknowledge the reality, which was what was so, which was that Judah ultimately became the dominant tribe and, uh, of, of the Israelite uh, experience. I only, uh, I love what you suggested only because I like to make it personal again, um, because it's instructive. I mean, I, uh, I had a young woman come to see me this past week. People still come to see me. Um, so I show up. And always will. Uh, so I show up. Can you, can I talk to you? Uh, I mean, 24 year old. 24 year old child of the congregation. Who hasn't been here since her bat mitzvah? But in any event, so you know, struggling with life and decisions and school and lots of things, and beating herself up over one decision she made or another decision she made, why she went to this college, why she did this, all these things, torture, really torturing herself, uh, um, feeling uh, paralyzed by by the consequences of her previous choices, part of the conversation I had with her was the same conversation, you know, you made decisions that were perfectly reasonable at the time, go to this college, or go to here, or move to Washington, or move, it's like, you can't look back five years later and go, what was I thinking, what you were thinking was, seemed perfectly reasonable, it seemed like it made sense, was it whatever, you know, and that's the art, that's who we are at every stage of our lives, every day of our lives. You know, there's only today. There isn't any past anymore. It's only right now. All we get to live in is today. So today you get to make a different choice. Okay. And actually those mistakes that we think we made back when we were less <clears throat> mature, yes. um, I think are the lessons that taught us the most. Yeah, I mean, that's why they're called growing pains. They're not called growing pleasures. They're usually <laughs> called growing pains because we learn out of challenges or difficulties or you know, screw-ups that we make or whatever, we go, oh, well, that didn't work out. What was it that didn't work out? You know, and, I mean, the challenge is exact, is to learn from those right. things. Yes, that's true. And not to keep doing the same thing and accept a different times. result. You know, the challenge is, okay, well, maybe I should turn right this time because I keep turning left and I keep bumping to the same wall, so I think I should go right. So, you know, isn't yeah. the reality, the big picture, that it's so hard when you're 23, 24? Yes. You don't see that. Big, you know, if you're 42 or 62 or 70-something. Yeah. Right. You can see it and we learn more. Right. So, um, yeah. people live in the here and now, but they're probably thinking, how will this affect my future? This is what that young girl was thinking about her future. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I and, and really all I wanted to do was get the... Welcome to life. This is everybody's life. It's not like you are somehow a failure in life because your choice didn't work out the way you imagined it was going to work out exactly. That's Everybody has stories of that in their lives if they live long enough. Everybody has stories of, well, I thought this, I thought that, I had this, I had this relationship, I had this choice, I had this career, I had this job, I had this, a million things that we do that then, and then... And so it's now what? Okay, so now we learn this, then what choices do we make? So look, that's part of this week's Torah portion. By the way, um, did I tell you about uh, the famous Harry Golden? <clears throat> I'm looking at 
Harry Golden story of um, who, uh, you know, great Jewish storyteller, <clears throat> Harry Golden, who uh, famously was quoted, I think he wrote it in one of his books, that, um, you know, he, his father used to go to, he went to an Orthodox shul somewhere, because most people did at one point. His father went to this Orthodox shul, and he knew his father wasn't particularly uh, pious, didn't, really didn't believe in anything, but he used to go. Every week he'd go to his Orthodox shul, and Harry Golden's famous story is he said to his father one day, what do you go to shul for when you're not a believer, you don't really believe the words of the prayers that you say, and you keep going anyway. And uh, his father said, look, Jews, Harry, Jews go to synagogue for lots of different reasons. My friend Garfinkel, who is Orthodox, he goes to talk to God, and I go to talk to Garfinkel. <laughs> anyway, I why I thought of it today, but I thought of it today. So, um, <clears throat> you know, come for different reasons. Some to learn about Torah and others to schmooze with somebody who you know, is going to show up. That's what community is about. So, um, uh, this week's Torah, I'm talking about the Torah version, and I'll get to that, another version of what we're just talking about. Because this is what Joseph, see, what, what is Joseph's, part of Joseph's um, uh, brilliance, really, to me in the Torah, is his ability to uh, revalue, Mordecai Kaplan would have been very happy, it was one of Kaplan's words, re, to revalue experiences of the past. Right? I mean, we were just talking about what does something mean? Well, what did that moment of history mean, or what did this mean, or these tribes mean, or what, you know, when you, when you look back, how is history going to judge it? So, how did Joseph judge the behavior of his brothers, who, after all, they were about to kill him, then sold him into slavery, and were like, the last thing they wanted was to have anything to do with him, and didn't see him for a couple of decades. And in this portion, like earlier in Genesis, after they meet, and they realize that's our brother who we sold into slavery who's sitting upon that throne, basically, and daddy dies, and then they're terrified again, right? What's he going to do to us now, now that dad isn't here anymore? And what does Joseph say? Oh, look, maybe we should read the Torah. That would be frightening, wouldn't it? Should we read something? Um... Uh, Okay, turn to, <clears throat> uh, if you're in your own the green book, everybody? Yeah. Okay, turn to page 295. Just skip to the end <clears throat> for a moment. 295. Just to let you know. Jacob dies. Then they, <laughs> and, the, and Jacob says, when I die, don't bury me here in Egypt. Promise me you'll schlep me back to uh, Canaan, and you'll bury me in the cave of Machpelah, where my fathers are buried, where Abraham's buried, where Isaac's buried, where everybody but Rachel's buried. Right? 
she buried her alongside the road. They found that cave. Cave of Machpelah? Yeah, they think they have a cave of Machpelah. They, think they, have a cave of Machpelah. they, they um, near Hebron. Um, the, um, so they do. They schlep him to there. They bury him there. They come back. And then, uh, verse 14, Joseph then returned to Egypt. He, his brothers, and all who had gone with him to bury his father after burying his father. Joseph's brothers, seeing that their father was dead, now said, Oi. <laughs> Some are buried in the Hebrew. Oi, perhaps Joseph still bears us enmity. I can't imagine why we sold him into slavery. Uh, and intends to repay us for all the harm that we inflicted upon him. So they brought a charge to Joseph saying, charge meaning a lie, your father left this charge before his death saying, Thus shall you say to Joseph, Please, I beg of you, forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin. Though they inflicted harm upon you, yet now please forgive the transgression of the servants of your father's God. First of all, as far as we can tell, Jacob never said that to the brothers at all. The brothers got together and went, what should we do? And they came up with this slight fabrication, knowing, knowing that they had just schlepped all the way back to Canaan with a whole entourage, and then all the way back again, based on a deathbed request of Jacob, and that Joseph had mobilized like a lot of stuff in order to fulfill that deathbed request. So they invented another deathbed request from his father, Joseph's father, Jacob, in an attempt of protecting themselves from Joseph's retribution and said, by the way, before dad died, when you weren't around, he said, please tell Joseph this and have him hopefully not bring retribution upon all of you. Interestingly enough, from this passage, a Talmudic principle arose that mipnei darchei shalom, for the sake of paths of peace, you can make things up. Literally. It's not exactly how the Talmud put it, but that's pretty much how the Talmud put it. Literally says, (coughs) it's okay to tell little white lies for the sake of peace for the sake of family harmony at the same as Shalom Bayit for the sake of Shalom Bayit although they use a broader term here Mibnei Darchei Shalom which doesn't apply just to the family paths of of peace because they use that same phrase in the Talmud Mibnei Darchei Shalom to say we take care of the poor of non-Jews just as we take care of the poor of Jews, for the sake of paths of peace, we don't just take care of our own. We extend our tzedakah, our gimilut chasadim, our acts of loving kindness to non-Jews as well, for the sake of paths of peace in the community, to make peace in the community. So they use the same principle based upon this uh, slight fabrication of the brothers of Joseph to say, look, for the sake of peace, 
you can make things up. They said the same thing, Ibnay Shalabayit, earlier, when, uh, when God uh, tells a small uh, creative fake news, fake news creative uh, reporting of something that Abraham said to Sarah at one point earlier on and uh, for the sake of peace and um, so they say the same thing that you know you how do I look in this dress? You know, I don't know. <laughs> Whatever. You say you say what you say for the sake of Mikne Darche Shalom. Personally. Yes. Uh, when I think about this line, I wish I had been aware of it earlier because I never lie. People say to me, you know, sometimes it's bad not to lie. <laughs> it's a good thing. Your friends should just learn what questions to ask and what questions not to ask you if they know you're going to tell them the truth. <laughs> yeah. It's a challenge, you know. It's a cha- Here, Here's the thing. Parents, when I used to do parenting workshops, after some of my brilliant books, now, I used to do parenting book workshops, and uh, often one of the issues that parents would bring up is, telling the truth to your kids or not about everything, some things, your own, mostly their own past. I don't want to tell my kid that I did this or did that or now that marijuana's coming back, it'll be a different question or whatever. But, you know, things like that. Um, and I remember often having conversations about the role of truth in life. That truth, of course, honesty, truth, forthrightness, is is a value and it's an important value. Of course, parents want their kids to be truthful, um, but it's not the only value. You know, there are lots of values that we have, and part of living in the world is recognizing that often we have competing values that are all values of ours. That means they're all things that we value and think are important, qualities we think are important, and. You know, here's five of them, but they may not all be of equal priority at every, any given moment. At sometimes in our lives, one of those values takes precedence over another value. And maybe safety of your children, protection, health, may take precedence in certain circumstances over truth, over whatever, or, or whatever, you know. That's part of the art of living and the challenge of living and why it's always a challenge and there aren't just, here's the handbook of how to do everything and you turn to page 32 and it says always do this or always... There are very few alwayses, you know, in life because circumstances change, life changes and you make the best decisions you can given the information that you have. Even the Ten Commandments get argued about a lot. Yeah, everybody, you know, it's like this or that or... Right. You know... Um, you know, the, the Torah says, Makat ish vamet mot yumat. One of my favorite phrases because it's so, it's a little short, powerful, punchy Torah phrase. Makat ish vamet mot yumat. Which means, if a person strikes another person and he dies, you die. <laughs> it's the short capital punishment uh, statement. In Leviticus it says, if, if a man hits another man, Makat ish vamet, he hit another man, 
and he dies, then you die. No, you mind, you, you will surely die. Put to death. Well, it's easy to say. It sounds short and sweet. But it can also mean a lot of different things. But there's lots of circumstances in which, what do you mean? If I hit somebody and they die, I die. What if that person was coming at me, trying to kill me? What if, you know, it's an accident? What if I'm, you know, swinging an axe to chop down a tree and the head of the axe that I just got from a store or whatever, or someone alone me, flew off, hit someone, and they die? Is that murder? Certainly death killed somebody. Is it the same as premeditated murder? It's, you know, life is more complicated than you you know what about war what about we send people out there to do exactly that go out there and kill people you know we don't kill every soldier that comes back sorry thanks for fulfilling the job but it says here if you kill somebody you die so we're going to kill you all I mean life is much more complicated than that and that's part of why we sit and wrestle with Torah and everything else because life's messy and complicated no idea how we got onto that. But in any event, here we are. So Joseph, Joseph's brothers make up a little lie to try to, because they're scared, obviously. What does Joseph respond? Joseph wept as they spoke to him. First of all, what, is, what does that suggest? Joseph wept as they spoke to him. What do you think? He was touched. He was emotional about this, profoundly emotional about this. His brothers also prostrated themselves before him and said, here we are, we're your slaves. Just don't kill us. Do what you want, but don't kill us. We're your slaves. And Joseph said to them, have no fear, for I am I in place of God, Meaning, what? Am I going to judge you? God, even more than just, am I going to judge you? Though you intended me harm, this is the punchline, though you intended me harm, I'll read it differently, though you intended me harm, God intended it for good. Whatever God is. God intended it for good in order to accomplish what is now the case, to keep alive numerous people. Now therefore have no fear, I will provide for you and your children, essentially. Thus did he comfort them and speak straight to their hearts. Actually, really kind of a cool translation. So, what does Joseph do with this reminder that they, his brothers, <coughs> sold him into slavery, so please have mercy on us, Dad, made it, whatever they made up about their father. And Joseph says... Forgiven. He reinterprets history yes. in his own way. And it was meant for good. He says, yeah, he thought it was a curse. Like What looked like a curse turned into a blessing. Isn't life that way? You know, Isn't that I mean, true, what happened in the story? It's exactly true what happened in the story, right? So, <clears throat> he, because he can look back on it, now that, you know, at the time, if you'd asked Joseph when he was in the pit, if you'd asked Joseph when he was in, you know, the servant, when he was in the next stage, which was in jail, you know, trying to get out of jail, if you'd asked Joseph all those things, 
So what do you think of what your brothers did to you? You know, do you think of any of those moments? Joseph was going to say, they're just doing God's work. I'm, I'm just enslaved here because obviously God wanted me to be here. Exactly. Yeah. Well, he believed the dream. Wow. So maybe he would have said, and he did say every once in a while, well, it's a, you know, God will, had faith that God will take care of him. But that's a little different than how he judges the actions of his brothers. Part of the, to me, what's, one of the lessons I'm always relearning over and over again is the power of attitude to determine our lives, how we feel about life. You know, is your life good? Is your life bad? It's like when Jacob is introduced to the Pharaoh a little earlier on in the story, when Jacob and the brother, when the brothers are reunited and they go back and they get their father and they all come down and Joseph gives them land to live in in Goshen and they're, you know, they're all reunited after 22 years of being apart, they're reunited. Oh yeah, that's why this is up here for the 17 years at the end of, of uh, Jacob's life, the last 17 years of Jacob's life, he gets to be reunited with his son, just like the first 17 years of Joseph's life. Joseph was allegedly 17 when his brother sold him off into slavery. Joseph, who was Jacob's favorite, of course, that's the whole deal, whole story, the coat and all that stuff, that Joseph was Jacob's favorite, so after 17 years, he's gone, so the first 17 years, and then there's 17, the last 17 years of Jacob's life, he's once again reunited with Joseph. Anyway, when he meets Pharaoh, <clears throat> he says to Pharaoh about his life, remember he was 147 years old when he died, according to the Torah. 147 years. <clears throat> he meets Pharaoh up here at the last, the beginning of the last 17 years of his life. So he's 130 already when he meets Pharaoh. This is Jacob, having gone through all of the things that Jacob, the whole Jacob story, remember the Jacob story. Jacob and Esau and fleeing off to Haran and living with uh, Lavan and marrying Leah, wanting to marry Rachel and marrying Leah and marrying Rachel and getting Zilpah and Bilhah. He's got four wives. He's got 12 sons and a daughter. He's got all this stuff. He's, you know, he goes through all of these ups and downs of life. For 130 years, he says, he describes his life to Pharaoh as few and hard were the years of my life. That's what he says earlier in the Torah. Few and hard were the years of my life. This is how he's interpreted his own life. He could have said, amazing and long were the years of my life. Do you know what I was able to do? I'm 130 years old. Do you Look at what I've done. Wow. Do you realize what I've been able to do with dreams of God and ladders up to heaven and all this stuff? And I mean, amazing. He was, in a, you know, by the way, an angel showed up and changed my name from Jacob to Israel. I'm going to be the father of nations. I'm going to be... Oh, we, we call our whole selves after Jacob, 
Jacob isn't just Jacob. Jacob is the, the paradigm, the model, the archetype of all of the Jewish people ever since. Not Abraham, not Isaac, Jacob. Jacob's the one. Jacob slash Israel. Jacob becomes Israel. Jacob is more than just a person. Jacob is a people. At the same time, he's back and forth. It's like a shapeshifter. He's back and forth between individual human being Jacob and collectively the people of Israel. He's our model. Wandering Jews. He's our model. But he says, few and harder were the years of my life. Joseph gets to describe his own life. We all get to describe our own lives. Here, Joseph reinterprets the experiences of his life to his brothers the way he chooses to do it. Yeah, you intended harm, you thought you intended harm, but really you were just instruments of God's will so that I could be here in a position to save your lives and all of us and blah, 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 and whatever. To me, that's, there are, there's, there's no more powerful lesson in life than that lesson that we have the power to choose our attitude about life. You know, and determine what we decide is the blessing and what we decide is the curse of life. Yeah? Isn't it interesting, though, that Jacob, who was Israel, is describing the history of the Jewish people. Short, few years, actually, and very hard. So maybe he wasn't describing his own personal life, Mm. but a prediction of the hard life the Jews are going to have throughout their culture. Yeah, you know, like, uh, was it a blessing or was it a curse that Jews have been kicked out of every country in Europe at one point or another? That Jews have had the history that we've had. Talk about attitude. You know, blessing and curse, blessing and curse, blessing and curse. Yeah, yes, yes, and no, and yes, nobody wants to be beaten up and have pogroms and holocausts and all the other things that have happened to the Jewish people. And who are we? And who have we? How are we still here? Let's eat. You know, (laughs) exactly. I mean, it's like the fact that we're still here is insane and counterintuitive. So Jacob's, you know, name, may, Jacob's attitude you know, may have been... It's like, yeah. The definition. So, you know, part of the challenge of life is always deciding how you're going to react to the experiences that happen when you don't get to always choose the experiences that happen. You, you know, I mean, we are here... All of us are here because somebody came here from somewhere. You know, we're a nation of immigrants or ex-slaves, one or the other. But we are here because somebody, ourselves, our parents, our grandparents, our great-grandparents, or wherever you want to go, came here from somewhere. The people who came here from somewhere were of a population this long, this much of that population, no matter how bad it was, no matter how many people got killed in the pogroms, or no matter how many starved because of a potato famine, or no matter whatever country they came from, no matter how bad it was, only this little percentage of people had whatever it takes to say, I'm out of here, 
I'm, I'm off, I'm leaving, I'm going, I'm jumping on a boat, I'm going on a whatever to some other country to make a new life. And we all became members of the tribe of Judah. You know, and those people are the ancestors of everybody in the country constantly over and over and over again, no matter what country they came from, right. Jewish or not. <clears throat> it's that group that made up this country and continues to, God willing, <laughs> be able to make up this country. And, you know, have doors that are open to some of those people. But the curse of this, the famine, the pogroms, the whatevers, led to the blessings of this, who were able to schlep with them sometimes with nothing. We were at a funeral yesterday of uh, Michael Jipes. Yeah. Uh, Michael Jipes, one of our longtime members. Michael and Edna, um, and you know his dear old friends and uh, children spoke and told the story of you know Michael born in Budapest and you know eventually fleeing from first hidden by in the Holocaust by a group of nuns who bravely hid Jewish kids on the other side of the wall. right on the, the other side literally the on the other side of the wall of the Gestapo. I mean, it was like the story was actually remarkable when you sat and listen, read the story. I mean, their, their convent, the wall of their convent literally was on the other side of where the Gestapo in Budapest was. And they, and they were hiding the kids, like, right... They took the children that they were right there. and risked their own lives. Yes. Converted them and taught them very quickly all the words, yeah. the catechism, I mean, so that if the Gestapo quizzed them... They knew it. You know, they knew the and they, they baptized all these kids to save their lives. And so they could honestly say, they're, they're all Catholic. When there were people pounding on the door and asking them, we don't have any Jewish kids here. They're all Catholic. They're all baptized Catholic. In any event, and then fleeing from the Russians after the Russians took over, you know, Hungary. And then, you know, eventually and moving and walking and fording a river. I mean, there's a... <laughs> It was a fabulous story they didn't tell yesterday of, of uh, Mike and when they were trying to escape from the Russians, um, Mike and two other guys who lit out in the middle of the night and they were going to swim across the river to uh, another country bordering on um, Hungary and they, it was freezing and, you know, the river was freezing but they said it's like life or death so they swam across the river freezing, got to the other side and realized they were still in Hungary. <laughs> the wrong river. <laughs> and in fact, got out because, and they were, look, imagine, freezing, and then they just got out of this icy water and it was freezing. Some soldier, some Hungarian soldier found them and actually helped them escape. So you go that way, basically. And anyway, you know, Right or left, life or death, I mean, you know, there's people in this room that have had experiences and family experiences of similarly. So, um. And Mike's attitude was success, move, learn. Yeah, you know, teach, it's like. And he did. But he might have. I'm just thinking about Joseph and yes, Jacob. I brought it up. In the hard times, they're not thinking, well, I'm going to be positive and go forward. No. It's more of like, this is bad. i got to keep fighting. Right. Yeah. And even Jacob, I mean, maybe he, 
a long, you know, waiting those seven years, maybe that was tough. And then he had another seven years to wait. It might have been very tough. It was I mean, definitely wasn't easy. Persevering. <clears throat> right. I mean, I guess he didn't look at the joys, but I mean, I don't know. I feel like I'm a little bit sensitive to Jacob that he indeed did hang in there for those yes, blessings. And, and uh, certainly Joseph had a long, I mean, wasn't it this? That's oh, the other yeah. thing. Here's the other thing. Who has an easy life in here? Nobody. Whose life goes smoothly, easily, beautifully, everything falls, you know, hearts and roses. That's not the way life is. So what makes the Torah so compelling always is it's not like everybody's, you know, a Greek god somewhere. Of course, they had screwed up lives too. But, you know, it's like they're struggling and screwing up and doing bad things. And, I mean, look, the, the one thing here in this portion... Joseph brings his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, right? Two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. That's the other thing I want to point out anyway. I love my Torah commentaries. The, the, uh, to be blessed by Jacob, because that's what you do, right? Oh, there's a little reminiscent here of, let me think, Jacob and Esau coming to their father to be blessed. Anyway, Joseph brings his two sons, um, on page 285, might as well read it, 285, chapter 48, verse 8. Anyway, so for a second, we'll read that. But here's, this is Joseph, because he hears, he's being told that Jacob, his father's on his deathbed. Heard that before? So he comes with his two sons to be blessed, hopefully, by their grandfather. Right? So, Israel saw Joseph's sons, all of a sudden it's Israel. Love the Torah. It goes back and forth. Sometimes it's Jacob. Sometimes Jacob's called Israel. Got to be a reason. There are no accidents in the Torah. Somebody wrote this. Somebody edited this carefully. Somebody edited every word in here. Uh, the, the rabbis say, Ein milam Torah. There is no extraneous word in the Torah. If it's there, it's there for a reason. So, you can conjecture. But the reason here, it's Israel, the collective people, saw Joseph's sons, asked, who are these? Like he didn't recognize them? Oh, wait a minute. When Jacob and Esau went to get blessed by their father, Isaac, what condition was Isaac in? Oh, yeah, his eyes were dimmed and he couldn't quite see everything right. And so they have a little... It pulls a little switcheroo and whatever, you know. The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau and blah, blah, blah. And he gives the whatever blessing. Can't really see. Hint, hint. Wink, wink. Okay. So, here we are. Joseph, Jacob says, Israel says, who are these? Joseph says, they're my sons whom God has given to me here. Jacob then said, bring them to me. Pray that I may bless them. Oh, Israel's eyes had grown clouded with age. He could no longer see. Joseph brought them over to him, whereupon he kissed and hugged them. Israel then said to Joseph, I never expected to see your face again, and here God has shown me your progeny as well. Okay. Greatest blessing, according to the rabbis of the Talmud, is to live to see your grandchildren. Tell my daughter, she better start having kids. Joseph then removed them <clears throat> from his knees, bowed down before him to the ground. J- 
Joseph took the two of them, Ephraim with his right hand to Israel's left, and Manasseh with his left hand to Israel's right, and he brought them close to him. But, lo and behold, shockingly, even though the same thing has happened in every single generation so far, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, shockingly, Israel switches his hands his right hand and placed on Ephraim's head, even though he was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, crossing his arms, though Manasseh was the firstborn. He then blessed Joseph, saying, The God before whom walked my fathers Abraham and Isaac, God who has shepherded me ever since I came into being until this day, the angel who has rescued me from all harm, sort of doing a recap of his whole life here, bless these lads. Through them let my name and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac ever be recalled, and let them greatly multiply within the land. When Joseph saw that his father had placed his right hand in Ephraim's head, it seemed wrong to him. So he took hold of his father's hand to move it from Ephraim's head unto the head of Manasseh. Joseph said to his father, Not that way, father. This is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused, saying, should be different now than it's been from every generation I know my son, I know he too shall become a people he too shall be great yet his younger brother shall be greater than he this is like every single generation somebody says the younger will precede the older the younger will be bigger than the older <coughs> excuse me what is that all about? hang on, I will tell you and his seed shall become a multitude of nations so he blessed them that day saying by you shall the people of Israel give their blessings saying may God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh and he put Ephraim ahead of Manasseh saying Yesimcha Elohim Ephraim Uche Manasseh. May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. I don't know if you guys do it or did it ever, but certainly it has been a very ancient, long-held Jewish tradition to say these exact words on Shabbat as the words of blessings of parents to their sons. It is the traditional blessing that parents give to sons on Shabbat is to put your hands on the heads of your sons and say these words here that I just read from this Torah portion. May God make you like Ephraim and Menashe. And why would you not put your hands like this? Please, I don't I just put your hand, put them any way you want. Put your hands on, recreate this. It has not been a tradition that everybody should bless their younger son more than their older son ever since biblical times. But these words that Jacob says, it is, by you shall the people bless their children. It's exactly what's taken place. It used to be, by the way, the tradition, there was a tradition <clears throat> in ages past of invoking this blessing not every Shabbat but once a year on Kol Nidre in many European <clears throat> uh, communities the tradition was 
once a year, Kol Nidre, fathers, fathers, would bless their sons, may, may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh, evolved into an every Shabbat kind of experience, bless your sons. What do we bless our daughters with? May our daughters be like, not exactly, that's only if you're in the filler on the roof. May your daughters be like Rachel, Leah, and Sarah, and Rebecca. Do you suppose that was not wanting to favor one child over the other just because of age? Well, I, no. Look, in the ancient world, there was the, the, um, inheritance laws right. were such <clears throat> that uh, something called primogenitor, right? The oldest son got the majority of everything, and in many cultures, everybody, every other son had to leave town. You know, the oldest son inherited the business or the field or the whatever, and and the younger one was out of luck and off. So I'm watching the crown in the moment. Everybody watch yeah, the crown? Yeah, watching the church. Cool. <laughs> you know, so it's sort of like Margaret, poor Margaret. You know, like the oldest daughter gets to be the queen, and the other one's like, <laughs> S.O.L. She's out of luck. You know, she's like, what do I do? Who am I? And like, I'm an also ran. And so that's the way it was. So <clears throat> they kept, why did they keep doing, switching this? Back to your original comment almost an hour ago about the text of the Torah apparently being written long after the fact. Someone wrote these stories. Some scholars, biblical scholars, have suggested that because Solomon succeeded David, and Solomon was not David's oldest son, because Solomon succeeded David, the entire Torah stories were then ultimately written in such a way as to constantly favor the younger over the older to inherit the younger, then that generation, then the younger inherited, so then the younger the inherited, precedent. then the younger inherited, and here I am, King this is, Solomon. This is the precedent. Just the precedent, just like yeah. with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, blah, blah, blah. Right. And then that's where it was. Okay. Who knows? Because it's, we're not there when it was written. Um, because it goes, it clearly goes contrary to the tradition, to the established tradition of, cult, of every culture in the world at the time, including. So, in any event, so who knows? Um, but why? Here's the, the eternal question: Has been of all the people to, to biblical characters to invoke to bless your sons every week? you're a traditional Jew, to say, may you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. Who the hell are Ephraim and Manasseh to be the people that you're going to be? Like, what do they ever do? You know? Be like Moses? Be like Abraham. Solomon? Be like Abraham? David. Have faith to wander and leave your, you know? No, don't be like Abraham. He left his father's house. So we don't want to bless our kids with that. Don't <laughs> But be like, with the girls, we bless them with be like the matriarchs. We don't bless the boys, be like the patriarchs. We bless them, be like Ephraim and Manasseh. So why? So They didn't fight. So one rabbinic response is, they're the first siblings who didn't fight. 
with each other. <laughs> First siblings that have set up by doing this, then they still didn't fight. Don't have any. We don't have any record of them. Every other. That's great. Every other generation of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's kids <clears throat> fighting. Jealousy. Well, yeah. How old were they? Primary Manasseh. No wonder how old they were. Actually. What do you do with three sons, Dana? <laughs> 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 Ephra- Abraham and Manasseh. Who else? The the more common response that is one of the traditional rabbinic responses. They didn't fight. They were the first siblings you didn't fight. The more common rabbinic answer to that question because the rabbis in rabbinic literature wrestled with the same question because it was like not be told, but why these people? <clears throat> More common rabbinic response is they are the best models of what Jewish life has been for the last 2,000 years. That is, even though they were the first Jewish children born in the diaspora and even though they were born from an interfaith marriage after all their mother was Osnat the daughter of Egyptian priest not of really traditional Jewish heritage married Joseph had these two boys born in the luxury of Egypt born in every single possible way not connected or raised connected to their heritage their Jewish heritage and tradition even so they became two of the tribes of Israel even so when Jacob here what Jacob's doing by the way is adopting them he says your children are now my children I'm now making them equal to my kids in inheritance they became two of the tribes of Israel the tribe of Ephraim, the tribe of Manasseh so they become exactly what Jewish parents wanted to bless their children with may you like Ephraim and Manasseh no matter where in the world we happen to be whether we're in Poland, or whether we're in Brazil, or whether we're in Spain, <clears throat> or whether we're kicked out of this country, that country, this country, or that country, wherever we may be, may you too still feel connected enough to your heritage that you, <clears throat> wherever you go, carry it with you and, <clears throat> and live out and become a, a member of the tribe, the greater tribe of Israel, Judah's tribe. So, in that sense, it makes sense, right? It actually makes sense that all over the world, this is the blessing, they would say, like, remember for Ayman Manasseh, even though they had it better than you, they were born in a palace, for God's sake. They were like, you know, they had everything going for them. Still, they schlepped out. Their descendants schlepped with Moses, left, and, and went to Israel and became part of the Jewish people, in just, that sense. Just real quick, because there are 12 male names. Yeah, well, who isn't there? The so who isn't there? There's no... Levites. Levites. The Levites didn't get a, right, didn't get a portion. Reuben, Shimon, Levi, Dedman, Judah, Sephardi, Zebulun, God, Asher, Dan, Nathali. There's no tribe of Joseph. 
So who was Joseph's wife? Asnat, A-S-N-A-T. And what do we know about her? Not much other than she was the daughter of an Egyptian prince, uh, priest, and she was given to, when, when, when Pharaoh lifted Joseph out of prison and Joseph interpreted his dreams and Pharaoh said, sounds good, you be in charge, make it happen. They then gave him Asnat as his wife to sort of further cement the the assimilation of uh, Joseph into the sort of extended royal family in that sense. Um, and that's all we really know about her. We don't know, no, we I mean, don't from know the Torah, we don't know anything. Jacob's daughter. You don't know anything about <clears throat> Dina doesn't even show up here anymore. We don't know what happened to her. Girls, you know, girls are like, girls, girls in the Torah are hard to find. So we don't know much about Dina either. And here at the very end, we learned that Joseph, that Joseph dies at 110, which was supposedly the ideal lifespan of uh, uh, in Egypt. But we don't know. Anything. It doesn't tell us about the other brothers when they died or anything else. Just you know, because doesn't matter. You know, we zero in on Joseph. This is Joseph's story, really. Joseph and Jacob's story. Dina, yeah, Dina was the rape victim. Um, by the way, the rabbis also say, oh, time's up. The rabbis also say, from this portion, we learn the mitzvah of Bikur Halim, of visiting the sick. Because it's from this portion that Joseph is told, your father's sick, ill, and Joseph immediately comes and brings his, to visit him, brings his kids. And so we learn the importance of Bikur Halim, of visiting the sick, from this, this Torah portion as well. Uh, so much more to talk about, but um, we're not going to. Anyway, I put this up here. The, oh, finally, wrote it on the board just because 17 was the the, the uh, uh, years before it. 17, the last 17 of Je- Jacob's life were considered the best years. Jacob, by Jacob, according to the rabbis, the best years of his life, um, and. Uh, uh, and they draw make that eighteen. I mean, yeah, seventeen because it paralleled the first seventeen years of it. But they of being could have done both eighteen. They could have. Like, yes, you're right. I don't know why they did because eighteen <laughs> became something much later. Because the idea of eighteen is a much later in Jewish history. Oh, okay. Ocean, that's why. Okay. Uh, number. But so seventeen. Besides, seventeen is the equivalent of tov, which means good. So therefore, it's the best. It means, it means good and. 17, the first 17 years and the second 17 years put together equals 34, which is the equivalent of the Hebrew word Vayechi, which is the very beginning of this portion, which is, and he lived. How do we know? And he, with the last 17 years of a life, what he lived? Because he put, what, that's how we know. His, his joy of living was when he was with his favorite son Joseph, the first 17, the last 17. Isn't that beautiful? Nothing like a mother. His star is meaning.